Hi there. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and Bible lovers the world over. I'm Tim McNinch, and this week my esteemed colleague Rachel Wren has the week off. So you're stuck with just me as we take a brief look at Joshua 24, 1-3a and 14-25, the first reading for November 8, 2020. Now, if you're a fan of Christian needlepointing, and let's admit, who's not a fan of Christian needlepointing? You may have come across the famous verse 15 of this election, framed and hung prominently in many a home. Joshua's own affirmation, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And you very well may have heard sermons about making a personal choice to be a Christian or to follow God and to reject all the other religious options out there. You may have preached that sermon, but there's more going on in this passage, and hopefully I can lend you a few insights to deepen your sermon if you end up using this as your preaching text. Or if you don't, or if you're not a preacher, at least to give you a few ways to think about what's happening here. I was inspired by a group of students I'm helping teach this semester at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. Shout out to section 14, woo woo to think about exegesis of a text like this as another way of saying that we pay close attention to a few dynamics in particular. The structure of the text, the words it uses, in Hebrew of course, its literary and social context, and the ways that we access the theology of the text. These are actually the same sorts of textual dynamics that Rachel and I always have in mind when we prepare for this podcast. So let's Get exegeting, and let's dive in with a bit of a Hebrew word study. As I read through Joshua 24, the word that kept sticking out to me was serve, avad in Hebrew. It's a pretty common Hebrew root, and it shows up 800 or so times as a noun, evid, and another 250 or so times as a verb in the Hebrew Bible. But what is unusual is the clustering of this term in Joshua 24 where the verb form shows up 16 times, and it also appears as a noun a couple of times. Egypt is called the Bet Avadim, the house of slaves, in verse 17, and Joshua is called the Evid Adonai, the servant or slave of Adonai, just as Moses had been called previously. So, when we look at how this word is used across the canon, what sense can we make of its meaning? Well, as a noun, Evid has a wide range of meaning. It means slave, first of all, but it can also mean any sort of social inferior or dependent. So it can be used as a kind of term of deference. Often people refer to themselves in the third person when speaking to a master or a benefactor. They call themselves avdecha, your servant, your slave. But the term can also be the title for someone's trusted representative. Like the kind of like the political surrogates that we see during election campaigns. So, for example, the Evid Avraham, who goes to find a wife for Isaac, functions as Abraham's personal ambassador, though he's also bound to Abraham as a slave. In the ancient world, these surrogates, who were often employed by a king, were often also technically slaves or economic dependents, and so the term Evid is fitting. The verb form, avad, basically means to do work of almost any kind. Now, often that's slave labor, but also it's often the work of worship, 
care and feeding of gods through ceremony and sacrifice, bowing and other signs of deference are all part of avad, and the work of priests in particular is often called avad. So with all that in mind, my own summary of the scope of this Hebrew root is that it has to do with people or gods who are bound together in relationships, but not just any relationship. Avad is talking about an uneven relationship, where one party is the master or lord, Adon in Hebrew, and the other is the slave or servant, Evid in Hebrew. And the work that the Evid does, whether that's manual labor or ritual labor or other acts that reinforce the differential in the relationship, all of that work is connoted by the verb Avad. So when we bring that scope of meaning to the unusual concentration of this term in Joshua 24, we can start to see the power that it wields in this passage. When Joshua and the people are talking about whether or not they will serve God, they're talking about entering into a serious, bound relationship akin to slavery, as it was understood in ancient West Asia. God says, I liberated you from the Bet Avadim, from the house of servitude, the house of slavery. But that doesn't mean that you are no longer Avadim. As Bob Dylan sings, you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's the choice that's put before the people. Who's it going to be? Will you be Avadim to the gods of your ancestors beyond the Euphrates? Or to the gods of the land that you now possess? Or will you be Avadim to the God who brought you out of Egypt? To whom will you be bound in an Adon-Evid relationship? And for whom will you labor? And the people unequivocally affirm that they will avad Adonai, the God of Israel. Now, while you probably won't need to go into a whole Hebrew lesson in a sermon, this is still a very preachable point, one that drills down to the heart of the passage. God is a God of liberation, but we haven't been freed by God in order to be independent and self-serving, unbound individuals. We are freed in order to be of service to God and to one another. We follow the will of God when we humble ourselves and cultivate relationships that build others up. Bob Dylan and Joshua are right. We're all going to have to serve somebody. It can be greed, consumer capitalism, the American dream the military-industrial complex, the religious-industrial complex, or any number of gods that vie for our avodah. Or we can give our allegiance and our service to God, who makes us ambassadors, divine surrogates in the world. Now there's another not-so-minor nuance to this text, though, that impacts the way we think about the choice that was placed before the people here by Joshua. The needlepoint slogan takes the invitation to choose out of context. And in a way, so does the Revised Common Lectionary. You probably noticed that the lectionary reading takes a few verses from the beginning of the chapter, cuts off in the middle of verse 3, and then picks up in verse 14. This is meant, I'm sure, to save time, and, you know, that's reasonable in some contexts. It may also be meant to skip over some theologically troubling verses, which is less reasonable in my view. But in any case, it will behoove you as a biblical interpreter 
to give some extra attention to what the lectionary jumps over. It's a selective summary of the history of the relationship between God and the people of Israel up to this point in the story, with an emphasis on the ways that God had shown amazing preference and privilege to the people of Israel over against their threatening neighbors, from the Egyptians to the Amorites and Moabites in Jordan to the various indigenous peoples of Canaan. According to the recap in Joshua 24, God had gone ahead of Israel and pushed out these people so that Israel inherited, quote, land on which you had not labored and towns that you had not built, the fruit of vineyards and olive yards that you did not plant, verse 13. Now, I have both critical and sympathetic theological readings of this section, and I think both can be held together. The critical reading acknowledges the recurring theme in Joshua and in the Bible more widely of divinely sanctioned, and in this case divinely performed, violence against and displacement of indigenous peoples. The notion here that God favors one group in a way that sanctifies the inhuman treatment of others is a biblical perspective, but it's one that is at odds with other biblical perspectives which claim the dignity of all. I think we have a moral responsibility to disavow the former approach and to embrace the latter. I know that preferring one biblical perspective over against another is troubling to some people's understanding of the the inspiration of all scripture. And all of you listening might not agree with me here. And some theologians have tried to find ways to justify the violent ideology of Joshua and to harmonize it with other biblical perspectives. But my own belief about Scripture is that it's a gift from God that's meant to facilitate a living relationship with God, not become a substitute for relationship with God by answering all of our theological questions and dictating unambiguously how we ought to live. So when we come across texts like this and read them in the context of a living relationship with God, I think we're moved to engage these troubling texts with seriousness and to evaluate them in light of God's holy goodness. I find that to be a faithful honoring of Scripture, even when we disagree with its author's worldview or theology. And, in my humble opinion, some words to this effect are entirely appropriate in the average preacher's sermon. After all, the genocidal texts of Joshua have been used over and over again in the history of Christian faith to justify atrocities against those who are less powerful than us. And for those of you who embody Christian faith, it's high time that we own that legacy and do the work of repentance, especially those of us from colonial heritages enjoying the fruits of stolen land. Acknowledging such things in a sermon may be quite literally the least we could do. At the same time, I think we also take a text like this seriously by trying to listen sympathetically to the experience and perspective of its authors, trying our best to understand it from the inside, as it were. And from within its own perspective, I think there's more meaning to be found in this text. In context, the whole point of this rehearsal of the deeds of God on behalf of the Israelites 
is to provide the basis for the choice that's demanded by Joshua. In other words, choose this day whom you will serve isn't presented as the same kind of choice as, you know, like choosing a flavor of ice cream. This is a choice that's informed by multiple generations worth of gracious, giving acts of favor by God, rescuing them from Egyptian bondage, protecting them in the wilderness, from enemies both human and divine, providing a ready-to-move-in home for them in Canaan. The choice that Joshua places before the people is a choice to either respond to God with gratitude and grateful service, or to snub the goodness that has been shown to them for generations and opt for the fleeting attraction of the latest shiny thing. And that's not really a dilemma, is it? Of course they ought to choose to serve Adonai alone. And that's exactly what the people pledge. Now, do you remember in the New Testament at the Last Supper, how Jesus predicts that his friends will betray him, and then Peter pipes up to swear, I don't know about these losers, but I'll never betray you. And then Jesus says with sadness, before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Well, that same kind of foreboding is in this text too. The people swear, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. But then Joshua says in verse 19, you will not be able to serve the Lord. And sure enough, the rest of the history from Judges to 2 Kings is all about the failure of the people of Israel to remain faithful to the God who had freed them from bondage. But you know, part of the reason that these traditions were preserved and recycled through the generations of Israelite and Judahite history is that that invitation comes again to each generation. And for those of us who claim this as our spiritual heritage, the invitation comes to us too. Choose this day whom you will serve. And if we respond with gratitude to the gracious initiative of God toward us by committing to serve Adonai, then we too must put away the other gods that are among us and bend our hearts toward God. Now, without Rachel here to keep me on track, I think I'm drifting into actually preaching a sermon instead of just giving you some pointers to get you started. But let me end with this. I think this happens to be quite a potent text to come up in the lectionary the Sunday following the 2020 U.S. election. By November 8th, we who are U.S. citizens will have chosen our political leaders, though the outcome is likely to still be unclear. But this text comes to us with a different kind of choice, a now what kind of choice. Do we go ahead into 2021 seeking our own interests, clawing for power over our opponents? Will we gloat in our victories or detach in our defeat? Or will we put away all the gods that clamor for our devotion and find the next ways to meaningfully invest ourselves in the kind of world God is making as devoted dependent servants, ambassadors, surrogates. Because it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And I wish I could play that song as our outro music, because it would be so cool. But I don't have the rights, so you'll just have to hear our theme song. Until next week, I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks so much for listening.